Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. It's a very special edition of the podcast this week, as we take you inside Tory Conference in Manchester for a fascinating, fun-packed conversation with the one and only Jacob Rees-Mogg and our Editor-in-Chief, Robert Colville. Now, it's a bit of a cliché to call these chats wide-ranging, but they really did cover a lot of ground, from the Labour politicians Jacob most admires, to the state of the British economy, and the thrill of taking on the world's fastest zipline dressed entirely in tweed. Uh, But, Jacob, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I think I might stand up so you can see me. You want me to say a few words of introduction? If by yeah. Well, I think we should all be enormously cheerful. And I know this is the last event that you're having here today. The CPS is a great organisation. It's been an inspirational organisation for conservatism. The flame of Margaret Thatcher, the torch that used to be our symbol, has been carried brightly by the CPS now for many, many years. And we should be really pleased that our side of the argument has essentially won. And yes, we've had 18 months of difficulty. Yes, we've had 18 months of doing things that a Conservative government would never want to do. But those are ending. Just look around you and see how people are meeting each other. And you know, they actually quite like it. It's quite fun, isn't it, to talk to people, to bump into your old friends, to look at an audience and see there are people here you've known for years and how kind of you to come and hear me bang on again. That's a particular treat for me. But that spirit of friendship that we enjoy in the Tory party is back at this conference and it's an indication that things are getting back to normal and that gives us the chance to deliver on what we promised to do in the manifesto of 2019 in the first conservative government of any margin since 1992, or if you want, since 1987. Oh, who's leader in 1987? Ah, there you are, there's the secret, that we are back to being able to do things. And we have an agenda that will do things. Who cannot hear Pretty Patel speak and not think that we have an ambitious agenda to ensure that the promises we've made to people are delivered upon? Who cannot hear um, Dominic Raab speak and be in... We are interested in taking back control of how we are governed and that we believe it should be done through our sovereign parliament, not by other bodies. And that's what conservatism is about. And fundamentally, we recognise that it is individual effort that leads to success, and that we believe that the individual should be left to make choices for him or herself, 
to ensure that society is built as strong as it can be. We do not believe in the central direction that has been necessary for the last 18 months. And that's why it's been so difficult for us. But why should we be cheerful? Because look at what was leaked about the Prime Minister. At every stage, he did not want to take our freedoms away. He was an advocate for freedom. He was an advocate for liberty. He was an advocate for individuals getting on with their lives and only acted when he felt he had to. And that bodes well for our freedoms being restored to us as they are being and us getting back to as we are now, enjoying ourselves as that normality is restored. So as your last event, when you leave, you should leave uplifted and cheerful, even more cheerful when you hear the PM speak tomorrow, but you should enter the hall tomorrow full of hope. Well, well ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. With that, uh, we'll, we'll close the show, because I, I think it's really quite, uh, quite hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> this, my, my prepared questions feel really boring after that. So um, but, uh, Jacob, I wanted to, to, uh, to ask you, your job is um, Leader of the House of Commons and Lord President of the Council. Um, leader of the House of Commons, I think people, people get. Lord President of the Council, what, what's the Council? When does it meet? Who, who are the members? If we were to go back to the um, 16th century, I'm sure you'd be delighted to know that the Council supervised torture. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and therefore, some of my predecessors might have had to go to the Tower of London to ensure that um, people um, answered the question that was put to them. Um, fortunately, that is no longer necessary, and therefore I don't do that. But as Lord President of the Council, I chair the Privy Council, which meets about once a month. I'm very, very lucky, because beforehand I get a private audience of the Queen, and that is, I must confess, the highlight of my job. I mean, it is such a privilege... And if any of you think the Queen is wonderful, which I expect you all do, she is even more wonderful. I mean, she's just so amazing. And then the Council approves all sorts of things. It approves changes to the law in the Channel Islands. It approves new coins. Um, it approves endless appointments to public bodies. Uh, we're often closing graveyards. We seem to close graveyards at every possible uh, council. I always check the ones in Somerset to make sure the one I'm intending to be buried in isn't closed. Um, <laughs> so that, that, that is what I do. It, it's, I mean, it's a, essentially um, a, a, um, an historic role that doesn't have a lot of substance left, left to it, but the bit that there is um, is extremely interesting and, from my point of view, enjoyable. And at these monthly meetings of the Privy Council, do the entire Privy Council turn up? I mean, have you got, like, Gordon Brown and Jeremy Corner and Corbyn and Tony Blair and, you know, everyone just kind of, like, all the gang back together? No, the, the, the Privy Council only meets in full under two sets of circumstances. One is at the Accession Council, because prior to the Act of Succession uh, in 1707, um, the Privy Council nominally elected the monarch... And so the Accession Council is the continuation of the Witan electing the monarch. It also meets um, if the monarch decides to get married. So when Queen Victoria decided to meet, marry Prince Albert, the Privy Council had to meet to approve that. Otherwise, it is invited, and you'll be glad to know the only people who are invited are members of the government. And so the last Privy Council, the Foreign Secretary, was there... Um, James Cleverley was there, and the leader of the House of Lords was there, along with uh, me as the, as the president. And then the other members who we were swearing into the Privy Council. Bear in mind, a lot of senior judges 
are members of the Privy Council, so they attend to be sworn in, but they don't attend as a matter of routine. And, and presumably the approval of the monarch's wife, it, it, it's not sort of retrospective. So um, if, um, if you know, God, God save us, if, if, if the Queen were to pass away, you know, Prince Charles, you wouldn't be sort of kicking the tyres on Camilla Parker-Bowles or Catherine Middleton. No, no uh, under the um, updated Royal Marriages Act, um, uh, approval has already been given by the Privy Council uh, for royal marriages, um, and so certainly the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's marriage was approved by, by the Privy Council. The Act was updated um, because the old Act was faintly ridiculous um, for reasons I could go into if anyone's interested, but it, it's a slightly esoteric subject. So it was updated when the succession to the Crown was changed in 2011, 2012. And, and the, the first half of your job is obviously the, the, the more important one. Um, I, was, I was struck by a reference to one of your colleagues um, sort of talking about the, the, you know, the, the, the wonderful changes he wants to make in his, his department. Um, if, if Jacob gives me time for the bill, I mean, how, 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 are, you, how are you? I mean, how are you balancing all? You know, this is a government which wants to do quite a lot of things, is doing quite a lot of things, has a, an enormous. You know, how, how do you get, how do you get it all through? And what what are the priorities in your in your view? Um. Well, look, I, I work very closely with the Chief Whip. In many ways, I'm the spokesman for the Chief Whip, um, that he really decides, and then I just have to put the public face on it to the House of Commons, and very, very closely with the legislative unit in Number 10 Downing Street. So whoever said it was up to me to decide was being very flattering and rather exaggerating the degree of control that I have. But what do we need? Um, we need departments to come to us with very clear ideas of what they want to do, the policy clearly formed, and then the ability to turn that into legislation. So there are lots of good ideas that people have, uh, which it may be possible to do already. The powers may exist. We don't want to waste time legislating for things that you can already do. Now, sometimes people want to legislate because it's a sort of virility symbol to say, look, I've got a bill through Parliament. But if the powers are already there, let's not bother. Let's just crack on and do something else. Um, sometimes you have policy that is half thought through, that won't turn into very good legislation. It needs to be completely thought through and to have reached a good stage of internal development within a department. And then it has to go to OPC, Parliamentary Council, to be turned into law and to slot in with all the other laws that we've passed over the centuries. And that is quite a complex and time-consuming process. But, but, but apart from that, you also obviously have to liaise with the, the parliamentary authorities. I mean, there's two, two questions, really. I mean, do you think how how has and you've obviously been quite an advocate for for getting back to the traditional way of doing things? Um, how do you think like parliamentary procedure and, and process will change as a result of the pandemic, for example, by using technology? And do you think Parliament has done itself credit during the pandemic, or were there things you were disappointed by? I actually think Parliament did itself huge credit during the pandemic by managing to carry on at all. That so the first discussions I had before Easter 2020 it looked as if we might have a very, very limited parliament, perhaps just with uh, leading party spokesmen and pairing to make sure that almost nobody was there, possibly not having divisions, but having things agreed so that they would go through. And we decided that that just wasn't good enough and that we had to take the risk of trying to get the technology up and running. And bear in mind, nobody had got a parliament running remotely before. 
And the technical problems were really quite difficult. And the, the team in the House of Commons did fantastic work to get it ready. And initially, we could only go for two hours. Then we had to pause and have another two hours. It was a bit like um, uh, television when I was a child. It used to switch off half the day. Um, but at least we got Parliament going. And we got scrutiny going. And we got the ability of MPs to have redress of grievance. And that was much better than what they did in 1349 um, during the plague, which I'm sure you're all aware that Parliament was then cancelled. So we did much better than um, in the mid-14th century, and I'm very proud of that. You, 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 you'd expect a certain level of progress uh, since, since then. Change, change. Aren't things bad enough already? No. Um, uh, so that, that was positive. What didn't work was that it just isn't as good as the real thing. And if you watch the speeches that were made, people zoomed in for three minutes. They paid no attention to what had been said before them. There was no sense of debate. There was no need to answer any of the points that were made. There was no real ability to hold ministers to account. Answering the dispatch box at question time done by Zoom was so easy because you knew pretty much all the questions that were going to come. Your own side were kind enough to tell you, and the other side, you looked through their Twitter feed, uh, and you, you had a pretty good idea of what bees they had in their bonnet. And once you'd found the bees in their bonnet, you knew what the um, honey was going to be, the honeyed words you needed to respond with were going to be. And that's too easy for ministers. It ought to be difficult. Good opposition, good scrutiny makes for better government. And so that is where it didn't work. And you also lost... And you must be feeling this here, I hope, that what is the value of meeting in person at a party conference or in Parliament? It's not always listening to people like me bang on. It is actually there's somebody you needed to speak to. You wanted to catch somebody to come and speak to your association sometime next year. You've grabbed them in the corridor, you've got them to agree, and now you've got your dinner sorted out. And it's all of that that goes on in Parliament. A quick word with the minister. I'm a huge fan of the Home Secretary. She is the most brilliant and effective minister. But one of the reasons I'm such a fan of hers is that years ago, when she was in the Department of Work and Pensions, I had a constituent, double amputee, whose PIP payments had been stopped, and she had floor of an office building in Swindon, which is going to be a bit difficult for her, to see if she'd get them renewed. I spoke to Pretty about this in the lobby. Pretty had it sorted out within 24 hours. That's the sort of thing you get done when you meet face-to-face, -face, which is much harder to do by correspondence or organising a meeting or any of those things that formalise it. It's just that informal ability to get things done, which we lost during the pandemic. But looking at Parliament now, I mean, you, you, it's almost like if, if you focused a camera on the Labour benches, you would be convinced that we were still in the thick of a pandemic. It's face masks everywhere. If you focus a camera on the Tory benches, you'd think that life was completely back to normal, like there's, there's not a mask in, in sight. I mean, although I'm, I'm told apparently at the Labour conference itself, you know, there was not a mask in, in, in sight. I mean, it, what, you know, that, that surely can't continue, that kind of divide, or is it just a, a piece of theatre on, on that? Oh, it's a piece of theatre on the socialist's part. Um, people have been telling me, indiscreet journalists have been telling me about the Daily Mirror's party uh, at the Labour Party conference, where they're all squeezed in, uh, not a mask in sight, and uh, possibly a glass or two of sherry was taken, a little tincture to keep them going. Um, and uh, So... I think they're doing it um, because it is in their interest to try and accuse us of getting back to normal too quickly. 
but we were right to get back to normal as quickly as was reasonably possible. The state did not have the right to control our lives a day longer than was necessary. It couldn't do it because it was convenient. It had to be necessary. But the socialist always wants the state to control things for the sake of convenience. But do, do, you, do, you worry, do you worry that the British public and maybe even British businesses have got too used to being told what to do, over, as, as the opinion polls seem to, seem to bear out? I'm tempted to say, you tell me, but that may not be the answer you want. Um, I wouldn't always believe opinion polls. Now, some politicians say they don't look at opinion polls. That's never true. Every politician is obsessed by opinion polls. They are extremely interesting. But when it was fascinating with masks. When uh, it was first not compulsory to wear masks, there was an opinion poll that said 95% of people still wanted to wear them. And you then went about your daily business, and you saw that at least 50% of people had stopped wearing them. So where did this 95% come from? OK, let me ask you. Ladies and gentlemen, who here, hands up, wants to be a good person? Well, there are one or two exceptions, but I'm, most of you... I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my, 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 my hand down as Tories come. <laughs> well, that, all together. But, but you see, you will ask, answer that sort of question the way you think you ought to answer it. it was, I think it was fascinating with people being asked, did they favour the strictures of the lockdown? And you were getting 70% saying yes. Other than, I think, members of parliament and journalists, I got the impression that a lot of people were interpreting them in their own way. Let's put it like that. They weren't breaking the rule, but they were easing them at the edges. But that wasn't what they were saying to opinion pollsters. And I think government is about understanding what people think and recognizing what they really mean by what they say to opinion pollsters. Dare I say, it's like opinion polls that say people would like to pay more tax. It's not not very often true when the reality hits. I think yes, we, we were going to get on to that. Um, one more quick question about your, your um, sort of, uh, sphere of um, influence. Um, the, the refurbishment of Parliament, what, what, what's happening there? Um, it seems like there was a plan to, to, for everyone to, uh, to run away and then billions to be spent, and now it seems we haven't heard much about it recently. Okay, my concern is twofold. One is the building should be protected, and one is taxpayers' interests should be protected. Um, we are getting on with the key works. A huge amount of work has been done on fire safety. There is an amazing system, a uh, mist system, in the basement to try and stop a catastrophic fire. And that's been really important work. And that can actually be extended, which I'm strongly in favour of. Uh, the cast iron roof has been repaired. Other works are continuing. But the big decant has not yet gone, gone ahead, isn't scheduled to go ahead for some years. But I'm very nervous about decant, not in and of itself, but because I think if we go out, it allows almost carte blanche for the expenditure on the palace. And I've heard figures of 10 to 20 billion pounds being banded about. Well, this is another opinion poll question. Who here wants to spend 20 billion pounds uh, on giving MPs a gin palace? You could, you could build a quarter of a railway for that. You could build a quarter of a very splendid railway for that, yes. Isambard Kingdom Brunel could probably have done several railways. For, but but um, we've got to have an eye to the amount of money that's being spent. And what we need to do is replace the wiring and redo the plumbing. We really don't need to put in 
uh, an underground um, level so that the lorries coming in delivering the food don't get seen on the ground floor level. That just seems to me extravagance. We don't need glass-covered courtyards so that MPs can have a cup of coffee. I mean, I can have a cup of coffee in my office, thank you very much. I don't need a courtyard to do it. And that's where we've got to bear down on the extravagant costs. Speaking of extravagant costs and bearing down, you've been one of the more outspoken members of... Um, the, the cabinet and the, and the government on the on the issues of tax. I mean, obviously you voted for the the rises, but is it a case of thus far and no further for you? No, I think the issue um, is first of all that we all have within us as conservatives a tension between sound money and low taxation. Governments ultimately run out of other people's money. We know that, and we have to ensure that ultimately the fiscal side of things adds up. And post a pandemic, there have been huge strains. And therefore, I completely understand why, as in 1981, people are saying one of the things you have to do to make the books balance is to increase the level of taxation. On the other hand, even with much higher rates of taxation, the economy has almost never sustained levels of taxation above 38% of GDP. And so we are therefore risking reaching the maximum level, not of any individual tax but of taxation in proportion to the economy as a whole. And therefore, there is this very active tension between sound money and low taxation. And that is an issue for, for the country, let alone for the government. So I'm going to continue trying to tempt you to, to create news in, in some... Uh, or commit, commit, commit news, I think is uh, the thing. Um, how worried are you about, um, about inflation and, um, and the state of... and the, the, the supply-side pressures that are... They're coming through in the in economy, and indeed the, the wider. Um, I mean, I, I hate to use this phrase in front of a gentleman like yourself, but the what's been called the effing crisis: um, energy, food, and fuel. Well, I, I, I think um, whenever governments have printed money, which is what quantitative easing is, that has created an inflationary risk, and we have managed to print money since two thousand and eight without there being any inflation. And we need to be very careful not to be lulled into a full sense of security. You cannot going on or go on printing money uh, forever without there being an inflationary pressure. And yes, we want higher wages for people working in this country. The aim of the government must be to help people improve their standard of living. And that does mean people being paid more, ultimately. But it has to go hand in hand with productivity. If pay simply rises on its own, the pay rises will be eaten up by costs being passed through. Uh, bear in mind, all business ultimately has to get its money from the consumer. And that every business model will consider, if I invest in the UK or in the US, how will I get the return? And the return they will be looking for will be the same whichever country they're in. And that will be inclusive of all taxation and all wage rises and so on. You can't just assume corporate margins will be squeezed because global capital doesn't work like that. So you've got to improve productivity. Um, energy prices are difficult because they're so variable. And bear in mind, the price of oil, what, May of last year, you were actually being paid to take a barrel of oil. Admittedly, you needed the storage for it, which most of us don't have. Um, but nonetheless, the oil price was negative. It is now back over $80 a barrel. Do I have any idea where it will be in a year's time? Not a clue. I guess it won't be the same price it is today, 
but that's the most I can forecast. So the effect that will have on inflation is unpredictable. Wage pressures have to go with productivity, and quantitative easing cannot go on forever. That's not to say you need to withdraw what is currently there, but adding to it must become increasingly risky. So you, and, um, it's quite easy to forget, uh, given your long political career, that you are a, you were before this an extremely successful uh, businessman and, and finance on the, on the financial side. Um, do you think that the, the government is doing enough to support business? Because you know one of the sort of strange threads of this of this crisis has been you know the, the you know, business basically being being blamed for becoming dependent on cheap labour, kind of which is sort of echoes of the the kind of f f business language that we heard. Uh, during the heights of the Brexit arguments. Yes, the only F word I know is floxy-knocky-nihilipilification, but I, uh, clearly <laughs> perhaps there are more Anglo-Saxon words that people know that begin with F. Um, I think we've got to differentiate between business and the business lobby. The European Union, to my mind, was a failure because it was in favour of the producer against the consumer, and it was in favour of the incumbent against the challenger. I'm in favour of free markets, which lead to businesses succeeding and new businesses coming along. And I'm in favour of governments providing the conditions where businesses can compete fairly and can do well on a competitive basis. The business lobby always lobbies for the incumbent to protect them from competition. So whether that is cheap labour, whether it is tariffs, as the European Union has, uh, whether it is an extremely heavily regulated system, um, as the European Union was providing, the business lobby always goes for the interest of the incumbent, not of the challenger. Government should be supporting the challenger because it's the challenger who stops monopolistic pricing practices, keeps prices down, makes new businesses flourish, and helps the consumer and raises our standard of living. So we're pro-business, but we recognize that the business lobby is doing something very specific, something perfectly honourable. It's not wrong of them to do this. We're all entitled to lobby for our own interest, but that is not the interest of the consumer. Uh, on, on, on a quick... Um Admin note: um, If anyone who's just joined us wants, there are there is a space at the, uh, on the sides down the front. You'll still have to stand, but you'll, you'll you may get a better better view. I'm I'm imagining that these are people who've, who've um, shockingly chosen to see, to watch the Chancellor first and uh, have then joined us subsequently. Um, on the way up here, I. Um, I was passing on the train from London, um, past um, some you know, beautiful countryside, um, and I t tweeted um, provocatively and uh, slightly mischievously, um, you know, what a lot of lo lo what a load of lovely, beautiful countryside, what a lot of beautiful houses we could build on it, and I have never had quite the vitriol directed at me uh, from you know from, from when I've tweeted like anything else. I mean, you're you I'm, I'm, I'm interested. This is obviously a really contentious issue, and I'm, I'm interested in your views on this because you are a free marketeer. You believe, and obviously, in, in free markets, but you are also the MP for a very, very beautiful constituency, and I imagine that your constituents are not very happy about the idea of development. How, do, how does the Conservative Party reconcile that tension? And, and more broadly, the kind of the, the clash between the interests, like, as we saw in the social care policy, the clash between the interests of the, 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 those who have assets and want to protect them and want to preserve them, both kind of aesthetically and financially, and the, the younger generation who don't have assets and are kind of looking on enviously. Well, first of all, I think you've led a very sheltered life on Twitter, um, if that's led to the worst. Uh, the, the, the most um, 
fury I ever create on Twitter uh, is when I wish people a happy Christmas. And it absolutely infuriates the left for reasons I do not understand. But, but, but it, 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 because you're not saying, you know, merry seasonal greetings to all faiths, or is that... Is that... No, I announced that um, today a saviour has been born to us and things like that. And the left go wild. It causes them apoplexy. Anyway, I think it, it, I think it makes them more spiritual and better people to um, hear this. Um, 1948, Town and Country Planning Act is a piece of socialist legislation which we have lived with ever since. And it doesn't actually work. Uh, look at the whole, whole, look at Planning in the Round. And there's a wonderful book by David Kennetston on um, polling in Britain going through the whole period. And it goes through Britain in various stages. And it continues beyond the series of his book. When you ask people, what type of housing do you want? What do they say? Houses with gardens. 70% say that, and 3% say uh, tower blocks. So what do planners want to give them? Tower blocks. How many politicians and leading architects do you know who live in publicly built tower blocks? Doesn't that tell you all you need to know about the failure of planning? And I believe that my job as a politician is to try and deliver for my electorate what they want, and I think when it comes to housing, they broadly want what I want, and that is a house with a garden. And I want a house that is not smaller in size than the house um, that was built 50 years ago. And we have seen the square footage of houses get smaller, and the amount of garden space around them gets smaller, in spite of the fact that that's not what people want, and therefore, understandably, when there is development next door to them, they hate it. Because if you're in a rural area, you get an urban development rather than a rural development. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous that a garden is not seen to be at least as green a space as a field. In terms of biodiversity, it is more biodiverse. Um, if you think of all the beautiful buildings that we built, think of the, uh, my constituency surrounds it, the Royal Crescent in Bath. Which planning authority in this country would give permission for something like the Royal Crescent in Bath to be built today? It is inconceivable that that would happen. And that is a clear failing of what we are trying to do. And I think we need beauty. We need to deliver what people want. And then I think you can have a conversation with voters and you can say, look, we're not going to destroy your view. We're actually going to improve it by getting rid of this scrubland or this um, old industrial site and build something beautiful. And yes, we may use an acre or two extra of greenfield land to give people gardens, but they will be beautiful gardens with roses growing in them and delphiniums and all sorts of other flowers that I can't remember because I'm not very good at that sort of thing. But it's providing for people what they want, not what we think is good for them. And the whole basis of it is, unfortunately, uh, the 45 to 51 socialist government that was the most socialist government that we ever had. And the 1948 Act, I think, was designed with the intention that all housing should be state-provided, or new housing. Well, we haven't done that now for years. So we've got to get away from that and deliver what people want. And Well, let me ask this audience, because I speak to conservative audiences quite a bit, and I have found that conservative audiences want housing built for their children and their grandchildren, and indeed for themselves, because they believe in a home-owning democracy, but they want it to be attractive. And if that can be done, there is broad support. So I'm going to ask you, if you think that's right, go yes. And if you think that's wrong, go no. So when I raise my hand, yeah? Yes! Now you see? The voice of reason comes from the Tory party. 
Wonderful. So um, the headline there, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, advocates ripping up the socialist uh, central planning green belt uh, with its horrible, ugly fields and replacing them with beautiful gardens and lovely houses. You paraphrase. <laughs> I do. Um, I'm going to ask two more questions and then, and throw, it, then, then throw it open. Um, uh, one is, um, so Boris, uh, when, when he gathered the cabinet post-reshuffle, made a joke about, uh, about delivery and said, I, I, I have been in more delivery rooms than any, anyone except, except Jacob. Um, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know um, how involved you were. Your, your wife is, is here, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not, uh, yes, uh, excellent. Um, uh, but, I mean, one, it strikes me, one of the themes of actually sort of, of, of conference, and I, I mean, I wrote a column about this in the Sunday Times a, a while back, is that we've lost, the, the family has drifted out of the kind of conversation and out of the Tory, Tory agenda. You have a, you know, you are, you are more qualified than any of us to talk on the, the virtues of, of family. I mean, do you think that's, it's, it's an element that we have, we've sort of, we, we've lost? Well, uh, my wife is in the audience, and it is true that um, the six children were her hard work uh, uh, and a great joy uh, to have six splendid children to look after me in my old age. Um, the family is of such importance as a building block of society. Uh, and actually, I think, again, it's about trying to help people lead the lives that they want to lead and having government policy that helps and assists in that. And I think people like family life, and yet I'm not convinced that the state helps family life. Indeed, in some ways, the systems that we have discourage family life. And we see in all the statistics that children who grow up within a family environment do better at school, are less likely to be taken into care, are less likely uh, to end up taking to crime. Now, the difficulty we face as conservatives is that in the 1990s, we became very preachy about this and were to live their lives. That's not our job. It's not to say this is right and this is wrong. Our job is to say, if you want to lead your life this way, that's your choice and we will help you. And that's, I think, the tone that we need to get and that we need to recognize that actually family is good for society, is good for the country, leads to a stronger nation, and we should support it. But we shouldn't... We should always value every individual. We should believe in the value of every member of our society, even if they take choices that we don't make. It's like in terms of freedom of speech. You have to support people who say things you don't like, as well as those who agree with you. And if we can get that tone right, then I can think we can be more supportive of the family. But I think those of us who remember the 1990s still remember the back-to-basics and the disaster that caused and the humiliation for the party that caused when it made it look as if we were telling the voters to live their lives one way whilst we were all busy leading our lives another way. And that's not so good. Do, do you think Labour understands what, you, what you've just said? <laughs> I don't know what the Labour Party understands. Um, I think the Labour Party and I think this is why we won so many seats, ha has lost its way. I, I, I don't think it stands up for what most people in the country think and feel. I think it believes that it should tell people how, how to live their lives um, in a very intrusive way. And I think most people want to live their own lives, thank you very much, and have their own views, uh, and not be lectured 
uh, on what's wrong with them. Because actually, I think we're a pretty splendid lot. Um, scum or no scum, I think we're a pretty splendid lot. And I, I don't want to be told by socialists that there is something wrong with um, the way I choose to lead my life. And I think that's why they've alienated so many people. Uh, well, well said. Um, uh, the one, one final question, uh, and then we'll try to the floor. Is um, you were pictured a few weeks ago um, going down uh, the world's fastest zip wire in immaculate uh, tweed suit. I, I should say. Is, it, was it? Was it? Is it now added to your list of leisure leisure activities? Will you be a, a regular customer? Zippity doo dah, zippity day. Um, it was great fun. I would recommend it to you all. Uh, you go really quite fast, um, and it's all perfectly safe. You get a wonderful view. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I can't think why anyone would wear anything other than tweed to go down a zip wire. And it was very interesting. I was visiting um, some sheep farmers earlier, and they were saying to me there was no use for their wool because nobody wore wool anymore. Well, I was dressed head to foot in wool, so other than my shirt, which I suppose was cotton. But uh, nonetheless, let's support our farmers, wear more wool, wear more tweed, and go down more zip wires, and life will be better and happier. Wear more wool, wear more tweed, and go down more zip wires. If that isn't a stirring way to end this week's podcast, I don't know what is. Anyway, do join us again next time, where our deputy editor, Alice Denby, will be discussing the economics of the Roman Empire with businessman and classicist George Marr. Thanks very much for joining us. Until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.